Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, I got to give a shout out to uh, Tim Lenahan. Tim Lenahan's a guy who went to Stockton State with me. Uh, when I was a freshman, he was a senior and he played goalie for the soccer team. And years later, he coached a Stockton. Then he coached the uh, Saudi Arabia World Cup team, and then he ended up at Northwestern University. Now, if people, if you, know, if you don't follow me on Twitter or you don't go to my website, coopertalk.net, you don't know that every week I take a picture with my guests. And it just so happened lately that everyone wants to give me t-shirts because I wear like my college t-shirt. So I'm I'm wearing a Northwestern t-shirt and it's great. It's one of those uh, Under Armors, which thank God I've been going to the gym because if I wasn't, I would not look right. I would look very thick in this Under Armour. But that's enough about me. We have we have a great show. We have a we have a very funny uh, guy, actor, serious actor, comic actor, musician, too hip for the room. You know, I'm not as hip as my... I see, the West were a perfect balance, and that's what I sent you when I sent you a message on uh, Facebook. <laughs> we have John Kapalos. Hello. It's, it's good to have you on, man. You know, it's, I was just thinking, everyone knows you. I mean, you know, I, and just from, you know, from Breakfast Club, which right. we'll get into. I mean, that was thing. I know you have a second city background and you mm-hmm. and all that. But that must be weird for you because everybody... I mean, it's not like... Like, I was in college, and that was, like, the big thing. Like, we loved that. But now it's like my uh, girlfriend's uh, niece is 19 she's in college and now there's this whole influx so you've been like seen by probably two-thirds of this damn country yeah i mean the movie is ubiquitous (laughs) it is everywhere and people watch it i've had members of my family you know up until the age of 12 13 uh, you know relatives whose kids are young you know not paying attention to me and then the one day it's like so and so wants to speak to you why because they saw the breakfast club last <laughs> night <laughs> and now this 14 year old or 13 year old who's like you know going hey you know uncle john <laughs> now, you know what's amazing is and now as a as a kid you're from ontario right london ontario now, were you a big hockey fan i liked hockey growing up yeah now as a kid were you into acting or what? I mean, we all, I always think, did you, I mean, because you had different TV, I mean, did you have the same networks or any of you had? Well, you know, really, um, I was raised in the dark ages. Okay. And so we had two channels, CTV and CBC, and we'd get sort of American stuff through there. And then in London, Ontario was the early place where cable TV was actually born in London, Ontario by the Rogers family. All the wealthy families of London would pipe in TV from Cleveland and uh, Detroit. And that's how cable started in North America. Okay, so so you started watching the cable? Yeah, and you know, or at friends' place because my parents would never, you know, flip for cable. <laughs> isn't it weird how it's changed? I always laugh. Like when I was a kid, there was in Philadelphia area there was channel three, six, ten, and twelve, and then there right. was UHF, which was seventeen, twenty nine, and forty eight. Right, that was it. Yeah, and at night at like twelve thirty, after Tom Schneider was done, so one thirty, you got the American flag. And that was it. Yeah, yeah. Now I sit there, and, and back then we had stuff to watch. Now I sit there. I have like every channel, and my girlfriend DVRs everything, and I sit there, you know, and I'm like, I don't know why. I sit there. I go upstairs and I watch the documentaries on Netflix because it's just there's so much programming now. But it just back then it was just so much more. Well, it's just so much of the same. You know, I, I, you know, I have what 690 channels on my TV, and I probably watch five consistently. And without giving up my programming habits, I mean, one of them is HBO. Oh, well, you have to. I mean, and, have you, you watched know, True Detective? Freaking phenomenal. That is, I sat there and when I, I saw the previews and I kept saying to my girlfriend, I'm like, 
this show is going to be great. But yeah. then you think, okay. And now what sucks is it's only eight episodes. Right. But I, we sat there and watched it. It's mesmerizing. I mean, well, it's I haven't it's seen sick. the one last night, so no spoilers I will, I on that. But I got to tell you, um, yeah, Woody Harrelson's great, but Matthew McConaughey is seamless as an actor. Oh, he's amazing. Because just the... the the character at the when he's the you know, long that, air that the, episode the one I saw last week with it ends with that whole thing of the right. drug thing the eight minute uncut take I mean it is riveting TV look at I got you got goosebumps just talking about it well you know what's amazing about that show is it's one writer one guy it's not like it's not like the staff they, this staff this guy me. wrote for the killing. And then they put him up in Van Eyes in some like garage, as he said, and he wrote eight episodes. I don't, it doesn't surprise me. You know why? Because Carl Reiner wrote like the first thirty episodes of the Dick Van Dyke Show. The auteur, the person that you know, this is a you know they're staffing up shows for ten, twenty writers, and they have different people from season to season. You know, it doesn't surprise me that it's that good because a single writer man can do it. But now if they return, there won't be McConaughey in house, and this is just one season that's fine but if they bring it back it will be probably other people but it's just i mean if you weren't if you were like one of these you know oscar actors and you're sitting there and you know you see mcconaughey do it who will probably win the oscar for dallas buyers club there's gonna be people because i gotta tell you something again this guy's on the rise i'm an actor you know plain and simple but i see people like meryl streep kate blanchett in 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 uh, blue jasmine and Matthew McConaughey and Bad Dallas Buyers Club and True Detective, and I go. I use the word seamless on person in, on purpose because sometimes you can see the seams with certain actors. The thing is, he's so damn good looking too. That's what I go. I go really. And it's- actually, I saw U five seven one the other day, and I like Matthew McConaughey now as he's aging, and you know I think he's become a much better actor. Oh yeah, and he- that he was never bad, but he is working at it. And a lot of that, that to me is the key when actors sort of work at it and keep on getting better, you know. Well, we're talking about acting. Now, what made you get into acting then? What was there, I mean, was there a certain thing? I know you went, ended up in Second City in Chicago. Well, it's funny, you know, you talked about, you sort of tweaked me onto a memory when I was a kid, you know, I'd watch these shows like Dennis the Menace and uh, My Three Sons and I'd see the, the kid actors on that and I always say, like, I'd like to do that. Now, I guess I knew that I wanted to become an actor uh, subconsciously before I knew consciously, but um, I did a high school play. I did Guys and Dolls and then I'd done some stuff in public school and I liked to perform. I liked to play my guitar and sing and I played old folks' homes when I was in sixth and seventh grade. What's that like? Because my, my grandma... His hair is yeah. too long. I'm now, singing Monday, Monday. And... Was there a musical talent in your family or were you the one? Well, n- well, my brother and sister are really... We all three of us took piano lessons. Okay. So our parents were really conscious of the value of education, whether it was musical or otherwise. And I think that, you know, anybody who's listening, it doesn't really matter if your child or your is is musically adept. I think that it just teaches you a way of thinking and it sort of takes you out of your head. You know? Um and that's why I think football, baseball, whatever these games, whatever kids want to play, I'm not necessarily a big fan of football, but the fact is that to get out of your head, out of your tree as I like to call it. And the thing about piano is it makes you or guitar, it makes you sort of look at music and think Again, out of your sort of own ego and head. So when you when you get out of high school, what do you do? Because you, you, you're loving the performing, you get the old ladies telling you to cut to the hair, and then you sit there, but now you sit there and you go, I have to make a decision. Did you say, I'm going to take this road, or what did you do? Well, I was in third year English class at Carleton University in Ottawa studying 18th century English. My beard was literally melting on the page or paper because I'd skate to school in the middle of winter. 
and I had this big beard and I had this sweet tweed coat and sort of this, I was nursing this whole sort of English teacher look. Right. And I remember we were in the middle of something to do with 18th century literature, whether it was uh, Sir George Etheridge in one of his plays, a restoration comedy. And I realized like a bolt from God that I had to get out of here and, and do something different. Like literally in the middle of that class, that seminar, I was just so um, keyed into the fact that, and I'd been doing some plays. So, um, I uh, I actually dropped out of university. And you went to Chicago. And no, I went to work on an oil rig uh, in the British Columbia, and then I worked in a record store. It was sort of uh, estranged from my folks at the time, and I had seen a Second City um, a show in Ottawa. Uh, with people like Tony Rosato and other people there, touring company out of Toronto. And I, it was a twist of fate because I was going to take their workshop, and then I broke my hand. and So it was a year before I got back into Second City, and then I discovered it when I went back to Toronto in 1979, May. And John Candy uh, was on stage at Second City. In, well, actually, the, he was. they were doing SCTV, and he'd come and do the improvs. So I took a workshop there, got into the workshops, and... John Candy became a mentor. Okay. And my mother was an American, so I um, at one point realized I had to get out of Canada, so I literally utilized my birthright, my mother's American citizenship status, and got my passport, went down to Chicago and auditioned in August of 1979. Now, what was that like? Because everyone says Second City was just like monstrous it's like as august a, of 78 i'm sorry i mean was it were you were you nervous was it could you sit there i mean everyone had such great back then had such a great reputation and they were turning people up what was it like because you were had taken the classes and you got to go to chicago which is cool well you got to realize at that time second city was not as stratified vis-a-vis classes and workshops and levels it was uh, 1978 uh, i misspoke um 1978 august and um, that whole sort of spring, I'd been taking workshops. And I went down and I auditioned for Del Close, Donnie DiPolo, um, uh, Will Porter, who's now Will Aldis, um, Joyce Sloan, Bernie Sollins, who were the producers, um, recently deceased, both of them. Bernie is, at least. And um, I auditioned with another actor, Mike Haggerty. And uh, we went up on Mike stage. Mike Haggerty, wait, the guy with a big guy with a. Yeah. I just talked to him. He's going to be doing my show eventually. I, well, said, he sent him a, I sent him a message the other day because I was watching Seinfeld. And this is how I get a lot of my guests. I watch a movie and I go, I know that. Per-, and I check because I, li- I don't like, I like to get character actors, people who just have great stories. Mm-hmm. And I was like, because he's been in a ton of stuff like you. You guys yeah. have these long ass resumes on IMDb. And I just sent him a message. Well, the Mike other day. is a good friend. And we auditioned together at Second City. That's and cool. They, they didn't have. Uh, they only had uh, one spot available in the, the touring company. So we auditioned, and um, afterwards we waited outside, sort of looking at one another askance and sort of like, you know, nervously fidgeting. And Joyce Sloan came out and she said, you both were so good that we're going to hire you both. <laughs> see that? So we uh, called, we, uh, there was a pay phone right there at Second City at the time, and we both sort of lined up and uh, said, well, no, no, you go first, you go first. And I called my mother, he called his mother. So that's yeah, yeah. so you're getting this recognition, and then now you start touring a lot with them, or do you start? Well, working? I started in the fall of '78 with Haggerty and a bunch of other people. We toured. Um, I was in the National Touring Company of Second City for three years, which is great because you get to learn the material. Right? There's a canon of material that you learn up until that point, and they have certain scenes that you do. 
what a Second City Touring Show consists of is two acts, two 40, 45-minute acts, uh, with uh, some improvisation in the show, but mostly set scenes, right? Okay. So that's what I did for, I toured, like, as I like to say, 35 states, including confusion and disorientation. <laughs> it is crazy, because when I did stand-up, you go on the road a lot, and you really just, you for like for comics, you're, you, you go to different, so many different cities that you never really, every hotel, you sit there and you go, okay, it's a Holiday Inn, I don't know where I am, and it's just that you get that feeling, because you're constantly, and you, oh, you there forget was what nights there are, because you're sitting there, because you're performing every night, so the only thing, the only way you knew for comics of the Saturday was, there's two shows, or two shows on Friday. I remember vividly waking up in a hotel room, and opening my eyes with the blinds closed and thinking for about 20 minutes, where was I? Right. Where am I? I just, and, and it was a game. You know, I, there was no phone book uh, in view. So I was sort of looking around and I was trying to think, okay, where were we last night? Where did we come from? You know, and it wasn't like I was so, you know, hungover or disoriented right. or something. It was just like I just didn't know. Well, it's like when you wake up when it's like when you wake up and you think it's like, you look at the clock and you think it's six in the morning, but it's six at night. And you're like, <laughs> oh my God, wait. And then you sit there and you get your bearings. But I know what you're talking because it goes for a lot yeah. longer than that split second because you sit there and you oh, go, I'm telling where? you, it was 20 minutes. It's crazy. Um, but. You know, we played a lot of places that uh, it was a memorable, memorable time because you learn how to act on the head of a pin. I'm sure it's with stand-up, too. I mean, you play in front of a garden variety of different audiences. You, We had, you know, the Power Center at, at uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, which, you know, 5,000 students down to, you know. We played the – I remember once we played the basement of somebody's house in Northbrook, Illinois at a bar mitzvah, a bat right. mitzvah. <laughs> you know, and, and there was shag carpeting and, you know, shag on the poles and, like, you know – the the lights were like a switch on the wall. <laughs> and we're playing to 11, 12-year-old kids, you know, or like, <laughs> you know, eating Jello. Um, but, you know, there were some great gigs. We played the Guthrie Theater. I played the, the Village Gate in New York. We did that for, you know. And I worked with great uh, actors. I played the, in, in Philadelphia, played the Bijou. Okay, the Bijou uh, Cafe. And, yeah. and played the Cellar Door in D.C. And, I mean, great, great gigs. I mean, it was memorable, memorable time. And I mean... To never say I mean again. Um, That's say, good. I, I say that too much. It's my I, verbal I, no, it's, I haven't really noticed it until you just said it. Because usually I just listen and <laughs> I, mean, I don't I mean, pick up. Like if someone goes, I notice, what I notice is, um. When people sit there and they talk and they, they um, and, and you hear on the phone and you're sitting there going, okay, just don't say um. Yeah. It's, it's, it drives you up. I mean, I stammer a little bit, but I, don't, I never say um. And it just, you're like, you, you, you know is a big one too. You know, you know, you know. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh. And use guys. But, you know. <laughs> Should have went is yes. a big one for me. Should have gone. Should have yeah, gone. You know what bothers me is like when you say, how are you doing? Instead of, instead of saying, I'm doing well, you always say, I'm doing good. Or, oh. or they go, where are you at? Where are you at? Like you hear people on the phone, where are you at? It's like, no, where are you at? Right. Where are you? So, so you're touring with them. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you one funny – well, there were several funny experiences. As a matter of fact, I've been struggling to write a screenplay about it for a couple of years about my touring company days. But there's this one experience we had, I remember. We used to do this scene called Harlequin, which was, uh, hi, I'm, insert, you know, I'm Peyton Manning. Right. You know, when I'm not throwing interceptions and getting sacked, 
I like to curl up the end of the bench with a nice Harlequin romance. Harlequin romance takes me the way of from you know touchdowns and tackles, right. and takes me off into a world of you know excitement and love and adventure. Right now, I'm reading the Captain's Curse. It's a story of a captain, you know, who who right. falls in love in a <laughs> desert island with a woman, you know, and it's Harlequin romance. My own personal way of scoring. Right. So it was a blackout, and we every yeah, blackout meaning it was a under sixty seconds, sort of a quick thing, not a scene. Right. Sort of something we put in between scenes uh, blackouts you know basically jokes sort of uh, uh, acted out so this blackout that a guy Bob Clemens did uh, when we were on the road and we're about and we're playing um, at State College at the University of uh, I mean Penn State I, I, you know, they take their football playing seriously it's a Saturday night right so we're about to pull out of their school after having done a great show right but there all of a sudden there are about 15 guys there and they're the defensive f- crew and they've just come from some frat party they're the defense of their freaking football team Right, and they're blocking the exit to the parking lot, and we're in this Fakakta van with right. the lights on, like going flashing, going, "Can we just leave?" And they're going, "Yeah, we're from the football team. Are you guys, you know, seconds Sudi or something, or <laughs> Second Village? Right. You know, we're Second City. Yeah, we heard you make fun of our football quarterback." <laughs> So we're going, yeah, because we are a what called comedy theater. We do what is called satire. Yeah, but you can't make fun of our quarterback. So, you know. Okay, guys. Finally, I'm like, Icebreaker said, we got to go. We got to get on the interstate and get the frig frag out of this town. We got to be somewhere else. Tell you what. We're going to do the scene for you right now, all right? On your suggestion of football player, we take you now to a TV studio. And the guy, Bob Clemens... Bless his heart, gets out of the van and does the freaking blackout for them. At which point they realize it's not offensive. Right. It's just stupid and funny. Right. Right? And then they go, okay, we'll let you go. And like, we just sort of so, wipe the brows of our, the sweat off our brows and went, let's get out of here. It's crazy. It's so funny how people react sometimes. So you're doing the second city. When do you start going to the, uh, when do you start saying, I'm going to LA or I'm going to start acting. Cause I know in your resume, I mean, you were, I didn't know you were in Dr. Detroit and you were in class. Neither did I. Yeah. <laughs> I was but, in class, but I was cut out. <laughs> well, well, 16 candles in breakfast club. Were, were you cast in Chicago? Did John Hughes know of you guys? <clears throat> Pardon me. Yeah. Um, oh, by the way, short, before you get into that, you were in Miami vice mm-hmm. and I'm going to tell you something. I just found that on Netflix. I love the vice. When we were in college, we would have places. I still remember you played a, Dicky lawyer, drug lawyer, yeah. yeah. And and the funny thing about that is, every actor, when you look at the people, everyone was in Miami Vice. I mean, you look and you go, John Turturro, you know, Bruce Willis, and you sit there and, and you. I was looking because I love Miami Vice because when I was in college, my senior year, I took a communications class, mm-hmm. with communications in the media. I don't know, and I didn't read any of the books, and I had to write a term paper. And I remember my brother said, "You know, Miami Vice, it's like a, uh, it's like the soundtrack to our." Uh, to fashion or whatever. So I just <laughs> bullcrapped for a whole, and I got an A plus on a paper, and I just wrote about Miami Vice. And it was amazing because that was such a different character. Well, it was, the pitch was MTV Cops, right? right? <laughs> and that's how they sold it to Brandon Tartikoff. Now you, you got cast out when it was out here? Were you in LA already? Or? Oh, God, no. I was in Chicago. So they were casting a lot of stuff out of Chicago then. Yeah, I mean, I didn't move to LA until about 86. And, okay. And, and I, had, I think I had some done something like 11 movies, nine movies. Um, before I'd moved out to L.A. because I was bound and determined 
to, you know, that's why I got a job at Second City in Chicago initially as opposed to going to New York and being a waiter. You know, I, I went to New York in the mid-70s and, and auditioned for Uta Hagen and, and Lee Strasberg. And, you know, it would have cost a lot of money and I would have been a waiter or a bartender or something, which, which I really didn't want to do. And right. The deal I struck up with my dad was, you know, get a job acting. Well, you know. That's why Second City, they were employing actors. I mean, they needed people to go out on the road. But, you know, they just didn't need anybody. <laughs> they, right. They needed, I mean, so, they needed talent. Uh, when I got into the main company in 1982, the day that Charles and Di got married, uh, was the day that I got into the main stage company at Second City. And I was in there for four or five years. But I also told my agent, any movies coming into Chicago, I really want to be a part of because I want to be in the... The movie acting world. Well, you were in 16 Candles. The first thing I got was uh, Lynn Stallmaster and Tony Howard saw me and liked me and said, could you do Tootsie? I went to New York under my own dime. And, uh, you know, the whole thing was done very under the radar. I mean, they, they hired me. And then I went on the set and worked on it. And it was not necessarily a fun experience, although watching uh, Sidney Pollack was great. But the, the leads were really, you know, kept on taking lines away from us day players uh, ultimately i got to improvise one scene with terry gar that's really not very good and to this day is not very good and then <laughs> for some reason they didn't want to put my name in the credits so i petitioned sag and i get residuals but and then i had another experience on michael mann's thief um michael mann was great but the scene wasn't that great was del close and then i did class and was cut out of that movie and then there's another movie dr detroit michael pressman who i just recently re-met because he's doing Justified. Um, a lot of great directors on Justified. John Dahl, you know, with, uh, Michael Dinner um, and Michael Pressman, a lot of directors from Ind and uh, John Avnet. So, but, you know, uh, those first four movies were called, okay, you know, it's sort of introduction to the movie business. I see how the set can be. I see how people can be. I see how you have to sort of grab your lines when you get it. You have to sort of, you know, make it count. So the next four movies were a little bit more successful. Then I got 16 Candles and uh, Breakfast Club. And I did Head Office with Ken Finkelman. Uh, and uh, then I did Nothing in Common. And I also did Miami Vice shortly after I did uh, Breakfast Club, I believe. So, you know, I was getting used to being on, on film. Right. Now, when you did 16 Candles and Breakfast Club and all them, did you know, like, I mean, when you were on the set, did you know that they would be a, a phenomenon that they have over the years? I mean, or did you just think no. it's just a movie? No, I mean, I never think anything's just a movie. You always think that, you know, this thing, if you love movies and care for them, you hope that you're in a winner and a classic and a great, at least a great film, Right. Uh, 16 Candles, there was this feeling, I remember the first thing we shot was the whole wedding sequence where we're coming out of the church and in the church, so, you know, Carol Cook and all these, Max Showalter, I don't know if you remember, but the grandparents, and yeah. Ernie Andrews, these were like stock and trade, right. heavy duty, I mean, Andrews was in some great movies, so I went, wow, and there seems to be a lot of momentum, and, you know, there are big people, Ned Tannen from Universal and John Hughes, so there seemed to be a lot of what you might call corporate wind-up behind these guys. Uh, behind the John Hughes. Obviously, when the film came out, I went, oh, this has a lot of, you know, stuff. And to this day, it. people use the term hairy bullhunk. They yeah. still use that term. I swear. It's just funny. Oily bullhunk. Oh, yeah. Oily, yeah, oily. I'm sorry. Harry, you know, yeah, hairy, you, we, you know. Yeah, you can't. So you do hairy these. bullhunk's actually a guy in Philadelphia <laughs> who sued us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you do these movies, and then so you're still in Chicago. When do you decide that I, you say, I have to move to L.A.? Was there a certain thing that clicked in your head, or did you just say I'm getting these roles, but 
there's not enough movies coming to Chicago. Well, I remember asking John Candy, when should I leave Second City? Which Because I was sort of like, you got to understand, I went on the, uh, I went into Second City in 78, and the mandate I had, A, from my father, and B, from me, was that it was such a great gig. It was like, my dad said, stay employed. I was 22, and I was th- when I started Second City, I was 30 when I left. It was eight hardworking years. And I didn't want to leave, but John Candy remembered saying, you leave when you re- realize you're the best person on the stage. Okay. In other words, when you have nothing else to learn. remember one night I was kicking butt on stage and looked around and that sort of stung moment happened where I went, oh, time to go. And also I'd done, as I said, nine or ten movies. I did a movie called The Naked Face with Roger Moore, Elliot Gould, Rod Steiger in Chicago. Brian Forbes directed it. Not a great movie, but a great experience. Well, a great cast. I and mean, a great God. cast. And and also working in front of that darn camera was very freaking important to me because like being in front of an audience, it's, it is a piece of furniture, but it's not. It's like working in front of this mic. You got to know, be aware of it, respect it, forget about it, but not entirely. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of a Zen exercise in, 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 in sort of concentration. And, and I, I really realized in 86 that I had to leave and I came out to California. I had worked with Second City in New York and I'd been in New York. We'd done the show at the Village Gate, very popular show called Orwell Then Ends Well and uh, for 84 into 85 and then when I got the call to do The Breakfast Club and did that um, because Rick Moranis had the part, right? I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Um, John, when I did 16 Candles said, you're going to be in my next movie. Breakfast Club. He told me all about it. Then I went off with Second City to do the Village Gate, in uh, and we did this Village Gate was this great club and, right, and yeah. Bleaker and Hud, uh, Thompson. And Woody Allen taped an album from yeah there. yeah. It was it, that was a f- wonderful wonderful time and you know you see inside Lou and Davis and stuff. I remember the Village at least the tail end of that sort of Village experience in that time. At least I got a whiff of it. You know, it wasn't 1960, but it was 1985, 84. The village, but New York was just different then. I mean, New York just had a different vibe. I mean, the improv was in Hell's Kitchen. It was it it was a crap hole. You had to worry parking there. Then all of a sudden, it's clean. Yeah, and it's clean. Alphabet City. It's not the same. I remember going in college. We took the train up, and you know, there was like people like hookers would be flashing you, and people just be showing drugs. I saw Andy Warhol's movie Trash on 42nd Street in a really bad theater, and I walked out and into the movie because they'd shot it on 42nd Street with junkies shooting up and all this stuff. And I, I remember literally, it was 1972, I was visiting my brother at Princeton, and or 71, it was because he'd graduated in 72. Or 70, it doesn't matter, because I remember in 71 when he graduated, my mother and I walked from Port Authority up to Central Park South because we had to check into this the St. Moritz Hotel, and it was the garbage strike. And my mother walked regally like a queen up Broadway, and there was garbage piled everywhere. And New York was a really difficult city. It still is a difficult city to live in. I right. Mean, um, wonderful, but it was also... You know, it was crazy. Crazy. So, what, what about Moranis? Well, apparently, um, John said, uh, You're going to be in my next movie. And I'm in New York, and I open up the weekly variety, and I see John Hughes about to, you know, John Hughes lensing Breakfast Club, you know, the, the words that they right. do. Right. <laughs> lensing Breakfast Club <laughs> flick. Um, and then I read the cast, and I went, Oh, well, you know, I'm not in it. 
And literally the next day, I get a phone call from my agent saying, listen, they've shot seven, eight days with Rick Moranis. It's not working out. Apparently, he played the character. And Rick's great, right? I mean, good actor. But he wanted to play the character, sort of SCTV-ish, sort of Russian guy with gold teeth and a big water chain, water keys between his legs that he played with on a chain sort of provocatively. And... um, John said, yeah, you read the script. The guy went to this high school and this and blah, blah, blah. So it wasn't a meeting of the minds. John just sort of instantly sort of called for me, and I came and did it. Now, when you moved out to L.A., I mm-hmm. know you had the movies, mm-hmm. you had been in Second City. Were you still a little bit scared? Because it's sort of like you're starting over, isn't it? Or, I mean, I mean, you were connected. You had a great resume. Hey, but- listen, I'm scared every day in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> um I think L.A. is a daunting place, and the problem is that the, the, the landscape's always changing. You know, whether you come out in 1986 or 2006, all new casting directors is a whole new, you know, and it's always sort of moving and changing. It's a movable, movable feast. It helped that I came out and, um, you know, got Roxanne, and which was, you know, an incredible experience, too. Steve Middleman was in that. Do you know Steve? I know Steve. And do you know Rich Scheidner? Scheidner was in that. Oh, I know Rich. Of course I do. Yeah, I'm doing a gig with Scheidner Saturday night. Well, you say hello to him. He's for a me. South Jersey guy. Oh, yeah. Well, Rich, is, Rich is great, you know. Um, and, and Steve Middleman, great, great, great. And uh, Max Alexander, um, Kevin Nealon. They have a really strong comic cast in that. I mean, I know it was a comedy, but the, even the ensemble were all strong. Which sometimes you don't see that. Sometimes it's like they, they don't. I mean, because you're all guys have resumes, and like at the time, Rich and Steve were like two of the hottest stand-ups around. I think that Fred Skepsi, the director, along with Steve, had a vision for way the way they wanted the film to be. And yeah, they, you know, one of the great things that happened in that movie, and and Roxanne is a shining golden moment of memory for me because, you know, oftentimes the experience of making a movie is not as great as the movie, and sometimes. You can have a great, really, really great experience doing a film, and it can turn out to be not a good film. But in this case, it was a phenomenal experience, and I believe a phenomenal movie. And my two, three months of shooting it were just <laughs> so much fun. But Fred Skepsi made us go come and watch dailies every day. He okay. said, listen, you want to get a taste of what we're doing. And it was a very wise thing. They weren't mandatory, but you know, we'd start watching dailies, and you start seeing Steve Martin do his thing. And you go, ah, this is the type of movie we're making because oftentimes particularly in comedies you'll see that different actors are doing different things so they're acting like almost in different movies right right and that's when a comedy doesn't work you know it's not it's uneven and you got somebody's really big and somebody's really subtle and somebody's sort of non-existent or whatever in this film we all went oh this is the type of movie we're making when you start doing well you were doing the comedies mm-hmm. then you start doing heading into the drama now the boost is that the one with james woods yeah okay that is one of those movies that that's not a lot of people have seen it, but it's just it's you get it's a little disturbing when you see it. You go, it's a lot disturbing. You go, wow, and just it's so funny. But how do you, as an actor, then you because you had such a back, it seemed like you had such a background in comedy. Now all of a sudden you you're starting to hit more drama. I mean, except for Miami Vice, you're starting to hit drama. Did you always want to do drama too, or did you just really love to do comedy? Well, yeah, I never really, you know, yeah. Um, I guess I realized after the fact, and this is sort of might sound a bit arrogant, but I guess a lot of people can't do comedy. <laughs> so initially, I thought, well, you know, um, you can do both. And I can, luckily, knock on wood, do both. 
there are lots of actors who do drama that are, can't do comedy, and there are a lot of comic actors that just simply can't do drama. Um, yeah, I wanted to do both, and I think, you know, like, you know, you see a lot of wonderful actors doing both. I think it's a question of um, actually using the persona, like in The Boost, for example, that you cited, my guy is kind of jovial and nice, and he's got a sort of a fun edge to him, and he turns, you know, um, James Woods onto the old blowzine, and, uh, he, but, but, you know, he's not a good guy. Right. And when he starts to pull that rug back, when you realize he's not a good guy, um, you know, I guess in my world, in my experience, I've seen people be like that. So funny people can, can be very unfunny or they can be very serious. So you're doing, um, you're doing that. You're getting serious. You're working serious things. And, and also I have to say, a lot of people that do comedy are unfortunately not funny. <laughs> and in the mid-80s, I found the types of comedies people wanted me to do. It's like, What? I mean, come on. Like, what were some of the roles? I mean, give me an example. Well, like, I mean, there was a lot of Porky's type of comedy out there, and a lot of broad stuff. And you do Breakfast Club and these things, and then they want to stick you in stuff like Bachelor Party 15. It's like, no, no. Right. I mean, a lot of things that have, I think, diminishing returns. And so you go, okay, what else can I do? I can do this. And, you know, it led to films like Internal Affairs is, for me... Uh, Andy Garcia? Yeah, I don't know whether you know the movie. I've, I've seen it. Uh, it's Richard Gere, too. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's a, to me, it's one of my favorite films that okay. I've been Why? involved with. Why? Because Mike Figgis is a phenomenal director. I think he gets great performances out of people. And I think it stands up as a f film noir. I mean, the scene that I shoot with um, Gere and, and Tamara Borowitz, who's John Turturro's wife, by the way, uh, and where, I don't know whether you remember, he's ask, I'm asking him to kill my parents, and he's feeling up my wife under the table. And he's doing more than feeling her up. And then he shakes my hand at the end of the thing, you know, where I ask him basically to off my folks. It's one of the most chilling scenes I've done. And it still works as, you know, the film really stands up. How does it, how do you deal, like you say, it's a chilling scene you've done. Do you just walk off and you feel dirty? I mean, I mean, say it's something that, I mean, and you're doing take after take. And it must get into your head a little bit. And, of course, you couldn't give that performance if it didn't. But it must just, when you walk off, you just be like, you must look at gear. Do you ever? Well, there's an unctuous quality to gear in that movie, definitely. And there are moments when you walk away and you've served the work, but um, then you got to serve yourself to make yourself feel better. Um, I'm not saying you know drowning your sorrows in you know alcohol and drugs, right. but you just sort of go away, okay, <laughs> and realize you know that was a moment in time that you just played that, and you know. You slip out of it any way you can. I must admit, when I come home after a day like that, I'll sit, you know, in my chair, uh, uh, staring at a blank TV screen for a good hour or two hours, sort of like cycling it out of me, drinking a little bit of water. Right. Uh, you know, maybe going up to the gym and working out. Uh, but, you know, you got to let that stuff filter out of you. Um, there's no other way of putting it. I mean... Joel, the character I play in The Boost, was pretty nasty. There's that scene at the end where he beats the crap out of me. I mean, I give cocaine to a pregnant woman in that film. Right. You know, it's like, not a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> my mother used to say, why did you get to kiss the girl in the movies? Yeah. I go, Ma, I get to kill the girl. That's exactly. what I do. You know? So you're doing, you're doing, and, you're doing, and I see the time you're doing a lot of TV, too. You're getting it in some Matlock. Oh no, you're doing some Mercy Road. But then you get Forever Night. Now, re refresh my memory, because that ran for a few years. Well, that was... Uh, Crime Time after Prime Time. That was before okay. Letterman came on CBS. And they were shooting a lot of shows, basically uh, low, 
budget shows. Is that like six, silk stockings? Silk stockings. Okay. And, uh, and then we, the, the first season or two of Forever Night was shot on 16 millimeter, right? And uh, then the German people that were involved production-wise wanted better quality. I'd shot that initially. I did the pilot with a guy named Farhad Mann and, and Rick Springfield, and then uh, I redid the show. That's how I remember it. When you were shooting that, you shot it in San Diego. That's right. Because I, me and my ex-wife lived on the corner of Third and Island in the gas lamp, and there was a nightclub around the corner. And I remember you guys were shooting a scene because I had just written a screenplay and it sucked. And I was talking to the guy. I'm like, I was drunk. I'm like, hey, man, can you get this to Rick Springfield? And I remember that's the, yeah, it was, it was, and you shot yeah, at this Rick little nightclub right on the on the corner there. He could have got something made for you, too. <laughs> <laughs> but now, what was it like? Because it's a series, so you, it's, you're, you're, you're well, a regular. Well, that was a series, and that was a pilot. Then. Okay. Um, I reshot the pilot up in Canada with another group of actors and people. It was like repeating a year of high school. It's like, oh, it's like same script but different people. It was a little. Uh, and then I shot forty-eight episodes of that show. What is that like? Going from you go from movie to movie, these movie, and you go into the TV shows, and then all of a sudden you're in for forty-eight episodes. Is it? Do you get? Everyone says you get really close with the crew, and it's just a different. It's a different feeling than when you're in just a movie. Yeah, I mean, I did 24 one season, 24 another. I mean, it was it was broken up into a couple seasons. Um, you get close. Um, on a professional level, you get really, really good with the camera. And, you know, you learn how to, you take after take, and you get a sense of relaxation so that, I mean, the first time I remember working on Tootsie, when I, the first time I worked in front of a camera, you know, I went into clench mode the minute they yelled accent. I was like, you know, I forgot how to walk. <laughs> you just get stiff and but when you working with a camera is very important for an actor and learning how to sort of not let it mess you up too much and also learning how to get the best out of it um yeah i mean the experience i worked with a lot of directors um and then i got to write and direct episodes myself now were you ready had you written before or was it just something that you always wanted to write i improvised at second city i'd written i writ, wrote 500 commercials for Amico in the mid-80s and won Clio Awards. Okay. So r- written and produced stuff and countless of industrial shows for Second City. Yeah. So you're right. So that must have been a good feeling to sit there and direct because, first of all, you came from working with so many directors, so you sort of know what you what you would want as it an was, actor. It was. Uh, at the time, my handlers, at uh, the people I'd signed the deal with, Columbia Television at, and, and Sony, or what was it, pre-Sony CBS or whatever it was, uh, pre-Sony... Uh, uh, Columbia, um, they they were difficult, you know, and they didn't give anything easily. And the Directors Guild of Canada, I have no, you know, the Directors Club of Canada, and uh, you know, born and raised in Canada. I mean, uh, honestly, I, I <laughs> they didn't want to permit me and stuff like that. It's like, hey, man, I got the gig, right? Um, but yeah, I love directing, and I intend on making some films. See, that's cool though. So now, as I see, as I see your resume, as I say, I love when people have a great resume because there's so much, and I see, and they're so different but they're so influential shows are just a different vibe is you were in Queer as Folk and then you were in Desperate Housewives mm-hmm. and it's weird is that Queer as Folk really no one saw that coming you know that was that was something very innovative mm-hmm. how do people react to, to that show as you being a part of the well I mean I didn't play a gay person you know I, I wouldn't mind playing a gay person they just don't seem to come my way that those parts pardon me whatever um, but the, the notion is that uh, I don't um, you know, I go up for these shows, and yeah, in retrospect, well, I've done Queer as Folk and Desperate Housewives. And I've Miami also, Vice, just some of these shows that were so cutting edge at the time. 
Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, I'm in the game, so it's good to be considered for these shows. And second of all, uh, you know, the part I played in Queer as Folk was a producer that happened to, you know, befriend a guy that was, um, you know, he saved his wedding because his wife spilled something on her gown. And the whole thing was uh, a funny plot line. But, you know, um, it's good to be part of certain shows that are seminal. Um, you know, if you do upon closer investigation, not everyone's a winner. But a working actor works. John Candy said to me, as one of my, you know, uh, things I asked him, I said, what, what is your policy? And he basically said, do everything. <laughs> right. Like, sometimes John did everything that wasn't great, and, you know. But um, at the end of the proverbial day or career, when you look at the DVDs or the list of things on the IMDb, uh, the things that come out are the, the things that stand out. And, oh, you did this and this and this. Maybe there were a few dogs in there. But, you know, so what? You did Seinfeld, right? Oh, I did. Yeah. Now, what was that like? Because I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. It's funny. It was you, I loved it. You played the guy with the, they thought had a drug problem. Right. The, I was Barry Prophet, his sniffing right. accountant. So now, now, did they know of your work or did they did something? Because like, I heard a lot of times they know people and they go, we want to work with this guy. Well, uh, you know, um, Julia is an acquaintance through, you know, she was in the practical theater and came out of Northwestern University with like Richard Kind and Brad Hall and, and Gary Kroger. And they all went, um, a lot of those people went over to Saturday Night Live. And I was in the main company at the time, that main stage at Second City. So I knew these people peripherally. I, I wouldn't count them as close friends, but, you know acquaintances and professional acquaintances to be sure veep i think is phenomenal by oh, the way veep is great we watched that it's uh it's great and brian husky was on the show actually two guys have been on the show dan bacadal which oh is yeah the and brian husky who's uh but you should have kevin dunn on too i'm not sure which one he is um kevin dunn wait i know uh, i know my, my i'm getting a, uh, I'm, I'm getting oh god imdb him he's just a great actor i, I probably know it's because they were they were on Nora beep. dunn's brother oh, okay they, they were on mm. veep and, and veep was one of those things where you don't know what to expect of it when you watch it and then you watch it and you go holy crap i'm gonna keep watching it it's like yeah, it's, it's like good. my girlfriend was watching it. i missed a few episodes and julia's great on it oh she's just it's such a good show but you know the thing is with seinfeld is i don't know whether they wanted me or not but you know they first of all when you throw a casting net out let's see who shows up and um you know, I showed up, and I I was excited to do the audition, did a good audition. It was literally, you know, 3.30 audition, 4.45, we're doing a read-through with the cast and okay. NBC. It's like, oh, you know, we need you to stay. Uh, it was a Wednesday, and I think we were taping on a Saturday or something. Or, I mean, Friday. I mean, it was, it was no, the following week, but it actually was the following week. But, um, but you know, Larry David's was... was Tom Sharonis directed at Larry. Um, you know, um, Jerry was nice. Uh, working with Michael Richards was phenomenal. I thought he was one of the funniest guys, hardest working guys. I feel badly for what happened afterwards because I don't think he deserves that. I think he's a hardworking, earnest, great actor. Well, you know what's funny about that also is if, if it was before all the times of internet and camera like that, that, that would have disappeared. Yeah. His whole thing, but the problem is now, if someone you know says something wrong and it's not what he did wasn't right, but now if you say something wrong, it's going to be on film and it's going to be haunt. And especially right. now with a cell phone, I mean, people can just you can say anything and people can just tape you joking around, yeah. and it's career suicide. Yeah, no, it's it's you know, um, 
in his circumstance, it was just like, I don't think he did the right thing and he went in the right direction. It was, it was just stupid and wrong. And it, but, but it also showed to me, because I'm not a stand-up and you are, is how much you have to respect, because I don't think Michael's a stand-up. No. He's an improvisational actor or something. Right. How much you have to respect that roiling audience. And when that audience is like the ocean and all of a sudden they go a little bit, the, the waves come up and the air, you know, and all of a sudden they're tossing your little ship over. You have to know how to control that audience. Stand-ups know that. Like Bill Maher, boom, bang, he can do it. Uh, you know, Kevin Nealon, uh, Rich Scheidner, you. You know, but he was obviously not in control of the situation. Right, and then people expect something different. They expect Kramer from him. And I'm sure that, that, exactly. must, that must be a point where it's like, no, I, I don't want to do Kramer. I want to, you know, and that, I think that happens and a lot. And he didn't have any of those lines like, yeah, I remember when I had my first drink line that right. sort of is inoffensive, makes everybody laugh, shuts down the jerk in the audience, and you move on. <laughs> you know, he just didn't have that in his hip pocket. And I don't think I had that skill set either. You know, you have to think quickly. But he was saying, okay, I'm going to go into this riff. And boy, oh boy, just did don't do that wrong. riff. So yeah, you know? so so the sci-fi you did. Now you also did Psych, which is coming up. For you. you did the show Psych, which I know a few people working on. Who said that's just a fun set. Well, yeah, the guys on Psych are great. Because now the one guy directs or writes a lot, right? The uh, the the and Dooley Hill's an amazing tap Dooley's dancer. Dooley's great. Um, yeah, they're they're both really phenomenal. Uh, Matthew uh, Rode? Yeah, Matthew. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, forgot it. I forgot James Rode. James Rode. Yeah. Yeah, he's great and and very talented. Also, huge, huge movie fan. Big John Hughes fan. Okay, so you know, didn't well, they hurt. they do a lot of the references, which is great. Yeah. Now I want to also get because well, I want to get to your music, but uh, I want to talk about Justified. I know, like, oh, we can I, talk I, about you know everything. <laughs> but I talked I talked to you. Uh, in fact, you called me from the uh, the set, and and the funny thing, and this just sounds dumb, but you know, as me, you know, I'm I'm a movie guy, and it's like I'm sitting there. I told my when you called me this morning to say the show, I told my girlfriend, I said, you know, I didn't see you forever. Did you think three years ago you'd be waking up while your family's in a blizzard back east, in a bed in a warm Burbank, and the guy from the Breakfast Club is calling me, and she's like, no, and see, that's the stuff that gets me. That's just what I love. But uh, they they do a lot of '80s references on Psych, and they do a, it's a very it's a very hip writing. I don't know how old the guy who created it was Stephen Franks, but yeah, it's very it, hip. It was you know, I got to work on several episodes of that, and and you know, I, I don't know what to say except that, you know they they treated me like a god, a king. A that must feel great though. It does, um, uh, and, and you know, on some levels, maybe it's well deserved. <laughs> but on another level, you know, I am a working actor. I do not like to believe. I don't believe. You know, I remember. You know, I knew John Belushi or more Dan Aykroyd, and you know, as the tragedies of people who buy their own PR or believe that they're that up there. I try not to do that. I realize that um, I'm a working actor. <laughs> now, what was Justified like? Because I'm, I'm going to be honest, I watched the first season, but then it's one of those things, it's like Sons, Sons of Anarchy. You fall behind, and then, as you were saying, there's so many shows on TV well, you that can you, you can binge watch it on Amazon it. now. Yeah, I know, but that's, I have Netflix. <laughs> but they shoot it, now it takes place. You get the Amazon app, it's free. You just download it. Wait, what do I do? You get the Amazon video app, free on your iPad, and you can watch stuff. Like Jill Solway. I don't have an iPad. I, I, have, a, I have the Chromebook, and I have a Google Nexus yeah. 7. We'll talk after the I, show. I'm, I'm screwed. See, I can't. I've got an iPad for you. Where here? I got ten. Here, have yeah. one. <laughs> See, now, just how did Justified come up? Come a lot. Part um, Justified came along with uh, an audition just over a year ago with Cammy Patton's office for what they said a recurring part. Uh, I did the audition, and they said they were quote lucky enough to get me, 
and brought me in. The first couple of episodes, I was kind of a almost like a background player. I had what is your role? A guy named Picker, uh, a mafia, well, a hitman from Detroit. And we find out he's Greek-American and, and uh, more lethal than we initially realize. And uh, you know, basically, at the beginning, I was... Um, uh, Mike O'Malley was the, the 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 boss that I was kind of his uh, his uh, you know henchman behind him. They sort of occasionally rack focused him and go, "Is that all right?" And I go, "Yeah, boss." Sort okay. Of like, you know. But then the part grew, and Mike O'Malley was offed by me. And um, I think that the really cool thing about this show, and and that um, Graham Yost, the showrunner, does is they kind of see, they get the terrain of actors they're working with and go, okay, this guy is testing well, we're liking the character, let's move him up a few notches. So they started writing for me, they gave me a storyline, and um, you know, I'm in the show currently. That must be a great feeling, though, when they, when they you go in. I, I, so many people, yeah. seen so many people, and I've guessed the mine have come on and said, it was, they had one episode, and then it might be recurring, and then next thing you know, it's, Four episodes, and then right. it's like through the whole years. Maybe only two or three episodes. Well, Jerry before. Burns is an example of, and he's a great guy. You should interview him. Um, Jerry Burns, yeah, a goatee. He was in a. He was is in Dog Dear John. Yes, but it's spelled J E R E. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. I know. And <laughs> and he doesn't have a goatee anymore, but he's you know he's a guy that plays comedy drama in that edge very very well. But um, you know Jerry came in for ostensibly an afternoon's worth of work and they you know he's been doing it two seasons later um i should be so lucky you know it's always good that people want you you know it's always good to go where the love is and um you know the reason you do good work is that hopefully it begets other good work right oh yeah so okay so through your career yeah and I always ask people this. What are some weird stuff that has happened to you with people recognizing you? Is there anything that's like people have sat there and just like, going, oh, my God, it's Carl, or oh, my God, it's that guy, or oh, I mean, has anything just, or have you gotten any good hookups? Well, I've always, you know, everybody talks about the the washroom encounter. I've had a few of those, you know, okay. you know wash your hands, or at least <laughs> before I shake your hand and stop peeing on my leg or whatever. Uh, aside from those strange encounters, um, I think because you have a very memorable face. I get memorable. I get mem- I get recognized a lot by um, guys at airports, like okay. "Hey, cool," <laughs> you know, like uh, like uh, what do they call them? The, uh, the yeah, the Castella. I know the the porter. The right. porters. I mean, black porters in New York, LaGuardia, just love me for from forever night. Hey man, it's skanky. Hey man, what are you doing here? It's like yeah, I go yeah, I go yeah. Don't you know your partner's a vampire? And I go. <laughs> You know, and I, and I said, well, you know, I don't really. He said, well, you should figure that one out. You know, guys just, and the other day in Beverly Hills, it was going, hey, justified. The guy scared the bejesus out of me. He was right behind me. Hey, justified. Good, you know. So there are occasionally, as long as it's not like, you know, Mr. Lennon, I want you to sign my right. album sort of thing. Um, so now they're talking about album, the music. Now, now you've. You've played music. You started young. You've you've kept up with it. Now I know yeah. the now the out. Is this your first? I keep calling it this an is, album. I always date myself. It, I it stuck in my head. It's an album. Albums, dear boy. Thank you. Yes, I'm always like at least I'm not calling them like eight tracks or laser discs. We'd have a problem with that. Well, the original albums, if you go back to seventy eights, would be like about four or five seventy eights in literally an album. Right. So an album was actually <laughs> something that you you know this is an album's oh, worth of yes. songs, <laughs> and then it evolved into the you know the the thirty three and a half, thirty three and a third, I should say, um, 
album, but it's still an album is still a selection of songs. Right. You know, Beyonce releases an album. You can download her album. I don't suggest you do, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I did a lot of music at Second City. I did a lot of music. Um, I started. I did a radio show for Second City called Second City Radio that I produced for Budweiser that didn't go anywhere. But I produced sort of these full buff songs, and I got hooked on twenty four track recording. And then it sort of. I did my first uh, album was called Sid the Karaoke Kid. It's available on iTunes. Um, and I did it with an incredible group of musicians, and it was a one-man show that I did karaoke style. Did it in Chicago. Um, it was not that successful, but it was a good um, sort of thing that I worked out. And then my second album I did is called May. I recently took it off of iTunes because I'm, uh, I did it all on GarageBand and on my computer. And the new album, I took it off of iTunes because... Um, I'm remixing it, and I'm going to be doing something special with it. Did you play all the instruments? I played all the instruments on May. So you've learned from the guitar, then you go, do you use a drum machine? I know, I know, yeah, I, I learned yeah, the drum machine, and, and I played with GarageBand, which is a phenomenal program. Okay. Um, actually, you know, if you're going to just mess around with stuff, it's great. And But I sort of, as a friend of mine said when I was, I said, I'm messing around with this program. It's kind of like a toy. He goes, oh, no, it's not a toy, man. You treat that baby right, and it'll give you some good stuff. And I went, okay, sure. And hence the, the album May. And this next one, this new one's called Too Hip for the Room. And uh, May, I wrote all the songs. On the Sid the Karaoke Kid, I wrote all the songs. But on, on this one, I'm using some Second City-type songs. I'm, I do a Noel Coward song, plus a few of my own. And I'm going to be performing this live with a big band, and I'm going to be mounting a Kickstarter to pay back the uh, money that it took to make it. Now, when you say you're going to be mounting, doing it live with a big band, have you have experience before of doing that? I mean, or is that something new? I mean, I know you had the second city. I know you're live performing. I have not had the experience of actually performing live with a big band, but I have performed live with a big band in the studio and I've recorded, but I haven't done it out in front of people. <laughs> it's something that I've been rehearsing and working on and... Now, where do you get your ideas to write your songs? What kind of music is it? When you say big band, is it like a Sinatra-esque, or is it a jazz? Cause yeah, it's, it's, it's jazz, big band. It's sort of following in the tradition of, um, of jazz has always had a humorous aspect to it, from Louis Armstrong on. Um, David Frischberg, I don't know if you know who he is. Um, yeah. uh, Jack Sheldon. So the, the lyrics are not, they're not funny, ha-ha, this isn't uh, Weird Al Yankovic, but they're, it's... Um, Ironic, funny lyrics. I have a song called Unfriend Me. I have a very funny song called You. Uh, I Wish I Was Married to Your Wife is another song written by David Rashi. Uh, a guy named Nate Herman um, wrote a song called uh, My Goodness. Um, they're humorous, funny, um, tongue-in-cheek, maybe a bit sophisticated. Um, they're not... They're not uh, they're th I don't really use language. I don't really... Uh, it's not... Um, it's not, you know, it's not, how should I say, blue in that okay. regard. I mean, it's, it's sophisticated fun. I mean, I love Sinatra, but I'm not trying to be Sinatra. It's kind of an, it's a, it's reapproaching the big band today. It's a very contemporary album, I, I believe. How do you come up with your lyrics? Do you just sit there and you go, wow, that's an idea? Or are you just walking down the street and you go, that's an idea for a song, and you sit down and you craft them? Because I've always wondered how lyrics do it, because, I mean, a joke is a joke. A joke you can write on Twitter like that. But a, a song, everything has to correlate. It's a good question, and I, the best answer I can think of is that, you know, you hear songwriters say this, you know, like Paul McCartney dreams scrambled eggs and wrote down yesterday. There are times when I wake up in the middle of the night, 
and I will have had because I write. You write many different ways. You write lyrically or musically, right? You can write. Words can appeal to me, or music can. It, it and I come up with the notion of like. I'll, like there's a song I wrote called Seven Ways from Sunday. My mother was dying. It was a very tough time in my life and her life. And I know that expression, Seven Ways from Sunday. So I wrote a song that wasn't funny, but Seven Ways from Sunday, I'll always be there. And I wrote this sort of anthemic um, 60s type pop song to it. And the words sort of flowed out from it. It was very simplistic and not necessarily intricate lyric. But recently lyrics just, they, I keep um, stacks of papers and I just write lyrics. They, um, they will appear to me, and then sometimes phrases come to me. Like the whole phrase, unfriend me, right. was like, really? People are unfriending one another? <laughs> and it, it strikes everybody as being absurd and ironic. So I had to write something about that. Now, we have a few minutes left. I want to ask you, you said about the directing. Do you, mm-hmm. Now, are you going to plan directing anything soon, or you said you wanted to do it again? Yeah, I want to do something very, very soon, like this year. Um, I'm going to shoot it very down and dirty, in other words, for very little money. And with actors... Um, that want to work in that situation, maybe using the modified, uh, what's the name of the the um, thing in Europe? Uh, the dogma. You know the dogma thing where you shoot with uh, real light, uh, actors okay. bring their own ma- uh, clothing, no makeup, uh, improvised, no flashbacks. There's this sort of dogma rules. I don't know whether I'm going to do it entirely into that, but... Um, you know, I've I've got this incredible camera. The technology's there where you can just shoot stuff. We could shoot us right now in real light, and it would be fantastic. Um, the only thing that they don't really, anybody doesn't want to put up with is bad sound. So I'll just right. have a sound guys and have a minimal crew. I'm working on two film ideas right now. So. Comedy or drama? Uh, it's funny, more drama. Now, are you going to be in the movie too, or are you just going to be strictly directing? One I'll be in, one I'll just direct. Now, is, is it weird directing yourself? I think it's... I think it's really difficult, and I think unless you, unless you really have to, you shouldn't. Um, I don't think that there are any hard and fast rules about that. If you are directing yourself, you've got to, you know, it's difficult to wear too many hats. And I think something does suffer. So you have to be really careful in that situation, and I think people can do it. You just have to really, really be careful. And you have to honor your acting, and you can't let it slip between the cracks. Time I directed my episode of Forever Night, I think I was lousy as an actor okay. in that episode. But that was the first time. I want to thank you for coming on. It was, oh, it was, it was great. It was a good, good conversation. Now, what's coming up? Just uh, give some... Uh... More Justified. Okay. More Justified. And then when does that season start? Um, the season started at the beginning of oh, this okay. January. And look for my Kickstarter at the end of March, uh, beginning of April, depending when I'm going to put it up. And now, um, you're, what, can you get on iTunes from you? Can you get the album no. now on iTunes? Yeah, what, what albums no, can you get? You can get you can get the album Sid the Karaoke Kid right. and a few other singles of mine right now on iTunes. Okay. Um, and May will be remounted after a few little changes to it. And um, Too Hip for the Room, where I cover Don't You Forget About Me from the Breakfast okay, Club. Okay, there you go. And, and tweet. How, how do people tweet you? Do you, do you uh, tweet a lot? At John Kapalos. Do you tweet? I tweet. I'm a tweeter. I don't know whether I respond enough to my tweeterese, but... Uh, well, do, you, do you write funny stuff or what do you tweet like I, I tweet a lot of jokes just because I watch I don't know whether like, I tweet jokes sometimes I tweeted once uh, about some woman sitting next to me on a plane and all my family got upset because I used the F-bomb you know uh, and it was, I still it was, use F I use F and a, uh, the thing and yeah, I never yeah, yeah. say I use it no and I've I've learned uh, my tweeting is all over the place I don't you know it's it's not necessarily funny haha ha, no well, I, <laughs> thank you follow on the Twitter people at John Kapelos J-O-H-N-K-A-P-E-L-O-S yeah, right? yeah exactly Kapelos, 
appreciate it. And you said it beautifully. See, and people, you follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website coopertalk.net i have about 225 episodes up on there also if you have a uh android phone go to the google play store you can type in cooper talk and the cooper talk app will come up and you can listen to all my shows on there and what else is going on oh stitcher radio and itunes type in one word cooper talk you will find me um i love stitcher isn't it great i love it I love I just, it too. I love all that stuff. I love I love just finding music. I love the radio on the internet. It's great, and that's the, I play on the internet. Then I play on my thing. Duh. That's right. See that? And uh, people also performing. Oh, every Tuesday starting uh, next week, I'll be at the uh, Playa Azul. I'm hosting uh, crappy comedy. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Uh, this Saturday, I'll be with Rich Scheidner at Jr's Comedy Club out there in Valencia. And Wednesday, I'm in, I think it's called Motor City. It's on, uh, I forget, it's on Ventura Boulevard in Encino. So keep listening to the show, people. Check me out. Send me an email, cooper at indie100.com. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. It's time for you to uh, take your vitamins, eat your vegetables, and drink your water. Have a great day.